Welcome to Grant Seeker Coffee Talks, a podcast for nonprofits to listen and learn from their peers. In this episode, we're discussing the things you can do to adapt programs during this COVID-19 pandemic. Our presenter today is Siobhan Richardson. Siobhan is the founder of Think and Inc. Grant Consulting. She has her MBA, is a grant writer, consultant, speaker, and active member of the Grant Professionals Association. So for the first half of the webinar, Siobhan covers examples of how other organizations have pivoted their programs, shares tips on how to modify and communicate goals, the importance of accountability while running programs virtually. Then we're going to end with a Q&A session where we read questions that were submitted by the attendees that joined us live on the webinar. Enjoy. All right. So how to pivot your program for greater impact in the community. There's really only three options as far as that, right? So if you're currently doing in-person programming, you have to figure out how to adapt your in-person programming to impacts of COVID-19, right? So that's one option. The second option is pivoting your existing in-person programming to an all-virtual option, right? And then the last one is any combination of the two, right? And this can vary within programs, and this can vary across multiple programs. So it really depends on your organization and what that looks like for you. Okay, so we're going to talk about in-person, in-person programming first, right? And really just talk about some considerations, some things that you really want to think about and have a conversation about with your staff and your board of directors. The first thing I will say is be honest. And when I say be honest, I say as an organization, be honest with yourself. If you feel like your program is not essential and because of the nature of the program, you're not able to adhere to social distancing requirements, meaning that it, can, it can't be safely run, seriously consider delaying that program until you're able to do so, right? You can delay that program, potentially deploy resources into some other programs that you have that might be able to be still offered to the community, but just in a different way. The second thing I will say is to always commit to observing any social distancing rules or any recommendations made by that local health department or the CDC or whatever your local community is doing. No funder wants to be a part of a super spreader event. And so whatever program that you're doing, making sure that you know all of those requirements and making sure they're being implemented in your community. Now, we all are aware that these things are constantly changing, right? And they do vary, right? So a part of it is your responsibility of making sure that you're always kept abreast of what is required locally as far as COVID-19 guidelines. The last thing I will say as far as in-person programming always have a contingency plan. If you're offering in-person programming and if things do change, if your community changes and says, well, there's a increase in cases, so we're going to have to limit or restrict or close, you always want to have a COVID-19 contingency plan in place. More often than not, That contingency plan is usually a virtual option, which is a backup to if we're unable to meet in person, we are going to have this virtual plan in place as a backup. 
it's really important to make sure that you have a contingency plan, especially if you're composing proposals. It makes the funder know that you have thought through everything, right? And that you do have plans. I don't think that's a bad thing to even have multiple plans. Um, if one thing doesn't work, uh, maybe having something else in place is a good option because again, we're all navigating this new environment and you may not know exactly what may work, but having a few options at your disposal is really key. All right, so considerations for virtual programming, right? So a sure shot way to run your program without too many unexpected changes, right? Um, as far as if you're offering your program in person is to go virtual, right? Um, there's no harm in that. If the if uh, COVID is still an issue, then you're protected. If it's not an issue anymore, then you're probably providing a, a good convenience for some folks <laughs> that have kind of been used to being in that virtual environment. So you really can't go wrong if you're able to offer it virtually. Um, before I uh, proceed, there's one thing that I will share, and I'm probably this will probably be a question for many people. There are opportunities out there for COVID-19 emergency funding opportunities. This may touch on kind of the last question that came up. Um, there are monies available that uh, to help nonprofit organizations that have been impacted by COVID. A lot of these are basic need opportunities. So if you are helping members of the community um, with hunger, um, homelessness, job security, things like that, especially from like the community foundations, um, there are a lot of those opportunities. And there are also opportunities to help organizations pivot. So these conversations that we're having now, as far as pivoting to a virtual environment, pivoting to serve a new um, need in the community. There are fundings to help uh, organizations do that. So I just wanted to share that. So you guys probably already know that. But uh, just so you know that there is support for you all financially once you do have a strategy in place. The next thing we will do is we will look at some real life examples of successful virtual programs. Okay, this first example is about an arts organization. Uh, they have, they're a theater, they have um, children um, doing performances, which the local community usually will purchase tickets to attend. So the ticket purchases is their way of having program income and it's a source of revenue for them. The size of the theater was isn't that big, so they're not really able to have effective social distancing in order to keep the performers and the attendees safe. Uh, because of the size of the theater, the revenues really would not be enough for them to continue running the program. So they were actually facing the decision of maybe having to close uh, because they were not able to stay open. In lieu of closing, they actually transitioned their performances to an online platform. That online platform was shared beyond their local community across the country and also people internationally were able to access these performances. The fact that they went virtual and they were able to scale in that way um, nationally and also internationally, they now have a larger group of people able to purchase tickets to see their performances. And so for this particular uh, organization, going virtual really helped them um, because now they have an online platform to deliver their program. And hopefully they will still have the flexibility to provide 
in-person performances when things do uh, become safe to do so. And so this is one example of an arts organization that was able to successfully pivot to providing virtual programs. And that pivot for them could be a virtual pivot because now they have a following, now they have an additional source of revenue, um, and then they can always go back to in-person performances when they can. The second example is uh, a summer camp for students with disabilities. So each summer they, they offer a summer camp uh, for students to be able to come and do things and um, creative things and, uh, you know, different, you know, sports and different things like that, right? And so now with COVID-19 uh, impacting us, they were not able to offer their in-person summer camp, so they made it an online summer camp. Campus were able to complete summer activities like drawing, creating projects, and doing art designs. And the nonprofit organization used Zoom for them to present all of their drawings and their projects to other staff members and also fellow campers. So it was a way for them to still feel engaged and connected and for them to share uh, a lot of the work that they had been doing. And so that was one example of a organization who was offering in-person summer camps. And of course, due to COVID-19, they were not able to do that, but they just kind of pivot what they were already doing online so that they would still be able to run their programs. The final example is a mentoring program. The mentoring program moved from um, in-person mentoring to online. And so they use Zoom to do weekly connections between mentees and mentors. Prior to COVID-19, this organization was having a problem delivering in-person mentoring sessions. The problem was a lot of the students were in school or they were doing after-school activities, or if you live in Atlanta, Georgia, you're stuck in traffic and it's hard to drive around and get around sometimes. And so sometimes some of the mentees were not able to make these mentoring sessions. Some of the mentors either had families or worked in corporate America, and sometimes it was difficult for them to find time either during the day or after their work day, or sometimes even on the weekends to, to connect uh, mentees to mentors. Having this virtual option really worked well for this nonprofit organization because they were able to meet at a time that was convenient for them. Um, one thing that they did share was a lot of the mentees were always online anyway, right? Uh, so being able to kind of tap into that online experience, taking advantage of what they're already doing, because most of the mentees were like between the ages of 13 and 18. So they were already engaging on their phones and already on, on, on the computers. And so the organization really felt like they were meeting the mentees where they already were. And they felt like they were doing it in a way that was... Um, easily accessible for the mentors because they can kind of schedule their own times. And so it actually ended up being more successful than when they were doing in-person mentorship. This example, like some of the other examples we talked about, I can easily see, see this as being kind of a permanent um, way for them to connect, although it would be great for them to also integrate in-person connections and between or even have this as a as a contingency plan for when they do go back to in-person meetings. Um, they can have a virtual option if there are conflicts or special circumstances to be able to still deliver their programming.
Okay, so the next uh, thing that we're going to discuss now is how to keep your staff and stakeholders accountable when delivering a virtual program. So most nonprofit organizations will have their staff and their team in an office, and it's really easy to communicate because everyone is there. Uh, you can ask questions, you can share information, but when it comes to a virtual work environment, a lot of that um, looks very different, right? It doesn't look the same. So you have to figure out how to do that and how to keep everyone accountable and still keep your programs going and to meet your goals. The first option that um, I will share for your consideration is using technology for team management. Now, you all are probably already familiar with a lot of the technology that's used. I know Microsoft Teams is one, Asana, Slack, I can go on and on. Uh, of course, the most popular, the, the Google Suite, right? So we're talking Google Drive and, and Google Docs and Sheets and everything, which makes it really easy because everything can sync and everyone can stay on the same page. So definitely using technology and like, like what we're doing now, right? We're, we're using Zoom uh, to, to stay connected and to still be able to have some really good engagement. So that's really, really key. And the second part of that is providing easily accessible tools for data collection and data sharing. I will add. So when we're talking about um, measuring programs, tracking programs, really making sure that you have that place that everyone could go, um, for lack of a better term, and dump data, right? And that everyone can see it. I know a lot of people um, might use Excel and maybe put it on a Google Drive and it syncs and everyone can look at it, which is good. Or Google Sheets is another good one. I'm sure there are a lot of other tools out there that are really easy uh, to collect data. Um, but so that's one way to keep staff and stakeholders accountable. Another thing is to develop policies and procedures to help staff properly execute the program. Most nonprofit organizations have policies and procedures in the office, right, of what you do on a day-to-day -day basis to hold everyone accountable and to keep everything going. Switching to a virtual environment, some of those policies and procedures may still be applicable, but some of them may not be applicable. So you really have to kind of look at what can be transferred over to a virtual environment, have a conversation about what makes sense, what should be removed, what should be added, and preferably have them in writing and in a place where everyone can see them and that they're aware of them. These are, these are kind of like the, the rules of how we're going to engage in a virtual environment, whether it's suggested hours of nine to five or um, any other policies that you'd have in place. But having that in place kind of still maintains a office work environment while still having uh, things that are adapted to a virtual environment. The third thing I would say is having frequent check-ins um, to support accountability. And so those team check-ins are really helpful just to check in to see how things are going with the program. Um, are your staff running into anything that they need to uh, get your support in or if they need to have some conversations about? What are some opportunities that you can help and provide support to your staff and uh, be able to be there and be a resource for them? 
another thing to consider is celebrating milestones. I love celebrating milestones. It keeps morale up. It keeps everyone energized and ready to go. Uh, I know personally on my team, we're planning a Friendsgiving event soon so that we can kind of celebrate how we've helped our clients throughout the year. So thinking about something like that for your organization would be so helpful because people just love coming together, especially right now with so much going on. It's really nice to have um, some things to celebrate. And the last thing is being aware and in tune to the needs of your team. Now, we all know that, you know, funders are working from home, we're working from home, so we can relate to the challenges and issues to working in a virtual environment. We have some families that are virtually schooling their children at home. Uh, We have other families that have just different things and that's going on that they need to adjust to. So having those offline conversations to say, how are things going with you? How are you doing? Are we meeting your needs as far as having a a sufficient social environment? And that's why I say those those check-ins are are really key and important, whether they're one-on-one or as a team, so you can still create a sense of community, although you all are virtual. So we just kind of just talked about the team and staff. So that's one sign. And now we're talking about the other side, right? Um, And so the first recommendation is using uh, technology to automate data collection. Uh, So previously, we're talking about using technology to keep the team together and engage. Uh, For the participants, we're talking about how to automate data collection. So for example, if you're having... um, an online education webinar, some type of um, seminar that you're doing. Um, And if you're having whatever you use, whether it's Zoom or Eventbrite or or, or survey, right, Um, to have people input their information. And if this is data collection that's important for your reporting um, or for your evaluation plan, kind of automatically having that captured at registration, whether it's their name and, you know, demographics and where they are and zip code and if that's stuff that you report out on. Considering collecting that um, during registration, uh, a lot of these apps do add that information to like an Excel or CSV file that can be exported and shared and integrated in different areas. And I will kind of emphasize the the ability to automate this stuff. (laughs) I think that that's really key here. You know, we all use technology to make us more efficient and effective um, to save time for doing things. So really the key here is automating the, the data collection and having ways to, we'll talk about engagement later, but having things that are just automated and very easy to to collect. The next part, which is kind of continuing from the first part, is about keeping participants engaged before, during, and after your virtual program. So that engagement before, of course, you know, you can engage people in a lot of different ways, whether it's email or whether it's a a marketing, um, uh, a newsletter, um, and also like how I described, being able to answer uh, enter a lot of that information in the registration part is um, is really key, right? Um, the during part is making sure that it is engaging and interactive and that people can share a little bit about themselves and be able to also kind of um, learn from what uh, the information that you're sharing. And uh, as far as after the virtual program, so this touches on those surveys, right? And again, the more you can automate, the better. So if you can have an automated email um, or survey go out um, after a webinar or preferably 
a link during a webinar um, so it's fresh in their mind and they can um, easily answer any questions that you have. And don't forget, because you do run the risk of losing folks that if you you send an email um, afterwards, um, it may get lost in their, their inbox and you may not get a response. But if you at least share it during the webinar, uh, you have a better chance of getting some feedback. So, you know, keeping them engaged after the program, also kind of keeping information um, constantly coming out about future programming and making sure that they're always in a loop of, of what you're doing. The next thing I will share is breaking down your programs into milestones. I think that a lot of people might be facing virtual environment fatigue, right, of, of Zoom calls and, you know, you don't know how many other Zoom calls they were on uh, during the day. So breaking information down um, in, in a way that you can celebrate milestones, it's just an opportunity to provide some encouragement and an uplift before moving over to the next uh, part of your program. Very related to that is monitoring the pace and the amount of content that you provide. This is also tied into Zoom fatigue, which um, I don't know if that's a real word, but you know we'll just we'll just roll with that for now. Um, having making sure that you're not providing so much information, the so information overload that the, that your participants aren't even able to kind of absorb all the information as you go, and especially if it's offered in a really fast pace. Um, you have to really ask, am I really delivering what I'm seeking to deliver um, at this pace and amount of content? Maybe not. So maybe you want to just look at the pace, make sure that your participants are still able to get uh, a lot of information about um, what you're describing and making sure that it's not too much content. And always know that you have an opportunity to follow up with additional content or supplement information as needed. The last point I'd like to talk about is considering using a online subscription or membership database. So especially if you're doing a program that's broken down by module, where they take one module and they move on to the next, and being able to have a system that tracks that information is really key, especially if they generate a little certificate so a person feels good that they finish a part of a module before moving on. This is really helpful because that way you can keep all your information in one place. You know how many people completed a program or how many modules the person completed, whether someone completed 75% of the module or 50% of the module, and you figure out, well, why did the only person complete a certain percentage. What is it about the way we're presenting our program that is having 50%, uh, having most of our uh, participants drop off at halfway through the module? That'll be an indication to really kind of hone in on that and, and figure out, well, what's going on? What do we need to do differently? And then that information will be tied to all the information provided during registration. So you'll know exactly, okay, well, let's figure out the age group or where they're living or some other things that they're, that that's going on, but we can understand this pattern of why people are not completing the entire program or they're not in, as engaged as um, you'd prefer them to be. So that is just some things to consider when you're running a virtual program. Uh, the next thing we'll talk about, and this is actually the last thing that we'll talk about today, uh, how to modify and communicate your goals that have been impacted by COVID-19. In the start, at the start of today's webinar, I kind of mentioned that we're going to be looking at this from two perspectives. The first perspective is from 
a perspective of you have uh, a program that you run this year. Um, you're in a position where you need to fill out reports and really provide the results of your goals, but you were not able to accomplish your goals because you were impacted by COVID-19. So that's one perspective. The second perspective is, hey, 2020 is almost over and I'd like to apply for some grants for next year, but I want to be very thoughtful about how I have a conversation with funders so I can position myself in the be best light and also be honest about how we've been impacted by COVID-19. So those are the two perspectives that we are going to have that conversation with today. The first thing that you want to consider doing is really telling your story about how you've been impacted. If you had to, unfortunately, lay off or furlough employees, let's talk about that. Tell your story. Tell your story of how you have either um, been able to be more of an impact in the community because of COVID-19, or if there have been some challenges, obstacles, or, or hurdles that have interfered with you trying to accomplish those goals. In doing that and in telling your story, you want to also tell a plan of how your organization plans to address challenges going forward. So if you understand it's twofold, you're telling your story of how you were impacted, but you don't want to just tell your story because you don't want it to be just a sad story. <laughs> this is how we were impacted. And then that's that. You want to follow that up with an actual plan of what you're going to do going forward. So your plan should be realistic, right? Something that you can actually do. A plan that is honest, something based on conversations with your participants, with your board of directors, and with your team about which you can honestly execute. And then you also wanna make sure that your plan is still fulfilling the needs of the funder. So you always wanna end on a high note. You don't want to end on the, this is what happened to us, da, 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 da. You want to end on a, this is what happened to us, but this is our plan of how we're going to overcome. Um, this is what we've done as far as overcoming in the past, and this is what our plan will be going into 2021. Okay, so this one is more specifically about writing a proposal. A lot of this is stuff that we have touched on, but I want to talk about it um, more specifically as far as the actual writing part. So we did talk about a COVID-19 contingency plan. So there's always a section of the proposal where you're presenting your solution to a problem, right? That's usually after your, your needs based statements of what the problem is. And then as you transition to, okay, what is the solution? As you're presenting your solution in that section of the of the proposal, that's where you're kind of um, integrating your contingency plan. This is our solution. This is what we've proposed to do. This is our plan of action. However, if we are impacted by COVID-19 in the following ways, this is our contingency plan of what we're planning on doing. And as a safety measure, because sometimes, again, it's really hard to plan um, what to do because we don't know. I always try to include language to say something along the lines of, we will adapt to what the local health organization recommends, our local health department or whatever the CDC. We will you know, make sure that we are um, always abreast of what's happening and we will adapt. Because if you have that language in there, whatever changes, 
it's not like you put something in, in writing and it's, it's stagnant, right? This is what we will do. Because when you have to run your program six months later, it's like, oh gosh, I committed to doing that in writing in a proposal. Um, but if you have some language in there saying, you know, we will commit to, you know, in addition to this or um, uh, alongside of what we're proposing, we are also committed to doing whatever our lo local health department uh, requires. So if they change their mind, then you're always covered. So I thought that's really important to share. We also talked about being honest about um, how your organization has been impacted and having a plan, right? Um, and so, and I did mention that too, like there's a lot of funding out there already for um, organizations that need help. So great conversation to have. I would also consider updating your community needs assessment. The reason why you want to think about doing that is that because of COVID-19, Everything's in flux where there are people that probably didn't have needs before that now have needs. Um, they might now be out of work. They may now have um, food insecurity needs that they didn't have before. The landscape is changing. And if you haven't done a community needs assessment in a year or so, this is the time now to do a community needs assessment. You'll be amazed to find out maybe there might be some opportunities in different geographies to offer your programming, a different demographic, uh, a different area. You won't know until you actually go through a community needs assessment to get that information. So now is a good time to consider updating your community needs assessment. And that way you're always adapting your programs to what's going on in the community. And you can really speak to that within a proposal because you have a, a recent community needs assessment, although they are already aware of how people have been impacted by COVID-19. It's always good to hone into your community locally and the people that have been specifically impacted and having a community needs assessment to back that up in a proposal. And lastly, I will end with um, talking to your funder, right? Um, having that conversation even before you submit the proposal of, hey, this is what we're looking to do. What do you think? And this advice is actually good pre-COVID, during COVID, post-COVID, just forever, right? To have that conversation with the funder. Um, it's especially impactful because having that conversation can create opportunities for a funder to uh, offer, oh, you know, we do also have this grant um, for those that have been impacted. These are emergency funds uh, for COVID relief. You may want to consider applying. Or they may have other organizations that they can introduce you to, uh, past grantees, where they can say, well, look, you all are having this issue, and I think if you collaborate with other organization and submit a collaborative application, that might be a good opportunity for, for you. So I always find talking to a funder um, and having those conversations are very, very helpful um, as far as connecting you with resources and also helping you craft a really good proposal. So I will stop there because uh, we're almost at the end um, and I will um, answer any, just a few questions before we wrap up and open the floor to Q&A. I'm noticing a trend um, related to your point for Siobhan on talking to your uh, funder. There, there are some people asking specifically for New York, for arts, or, you know, specific, where do you find funders or uh, funders that will fund uh, remote technology or, you know, anything related to COVID. And so I've been posting out a database for Candid which mm -hmm. used to be GuideStar and Foundation Center, they have a good landing page. Mm -hmm. um, also, GrantStation and other mm -hmm. databases always have. Uh, do you have any favorites that we should talk about here that I might not be including in the Q&A? Yeah, 
Excellent question. I do love Grand Station. Grand Station is a great uh, resource. I do really like Instrumental too. Instrumental is a great resource uh, to find uh, grants. I do also try to get on as many of those like distribution lists for funders. So when grant opportunities do come out that it comes right in your inbox and that you're monitoring that pretty closely. So being just super diligent and really looking at a lot of the databases that Tammy mentioned, and I'm sure she's probably dropped it in the chat already, um, and, and doing your research, seeing what's out there. Of course, working with a grant professional is helpful too, as far as this guidance and support. So that's always an option. But short of that, there's a lot of um, information online uh, that you can look at. Also, social media, believe it or not, um, social media is is really big, especially if you're in like the um, doing social justice work. Uh, as far as posting grants that are coming down the pipeline, you'd be amazed at how many Instagram photos you'll see with, you know, this grant is coming out on this date. Um, I, I've seen a lot there, quite, quite um, honestly. And all the other social media channel, uh, channels, too, would be good uh, resources as far as finding grant opportunities. Thank you. Uh, but we do have uh, time for a few more questions if you want to stay on. We have four people who, in addition to the person who wrote this, who, who thought this was good, but... Um, if youth and parents are opposed to extended screen time, how do we effectively offer virtual programs? And it kind of ties, and I know you talked mm -hmm. about Zoom fatigue, and that, I, I knocked off eight questions when you talked about that live. So that was a hot topic. So thank you. Yeah. Thank yeah. you about that. Um, yeah. but education and support online. Zoom fatigue and, and, and limited screen time. Do you have any suggestions or? It's, it's hard. Um, I'm, I'm a parent and I think every family and parent has to make decisions about screen time and virtual learning and all of that. So it's, it's such a personal decision. And I think offering virtual programming as an option uh, for engagement as a alternative to not having the program at all is a good option. And I'm also a fan of virtual programming that can be on demand if possible. That's not always doable. Yeah. But if it can be on demand or if it can be recorded or people can access it later, if that's an option, definitely consider it. Because if someone is doing virtual schooling all week, maybe a Saturday and Sunday when they have some downtime, it would be a better time for them to engage with uh, it with a program virtually. Great advice. Mm -hmm. Megan, I think you have a couple teed up. Do you yeah, have a I, I do. Yeah. So I, I mean, you've got a lot of them that are kind of the same, you know, in the same realm, but you know, a lot of people are wondering how do you do virtual and how do you the like the virtual versus in person, how do you uh, justify the cost to the funder? And then also can you charge the same for real life ah. versus virtual? That's a great question. So in theory, let's say, in theory, if you were doing a program, and let me throw a fundraiser in there, right? We didn't talk about it because that's a whole nother thing. But let's say if you normally have your chicken dinner fundraiser, right? <laughs> and you normally charge $125 per ticket. That $125 will pay for the venue, will pay for the chicken dinner, will pay for the entertainment, will pay, will pay, will pay, right? 
in theory, if you're having a virtual program or fundraiser, can you charge $125 in theory because you don't have those expenses? Maybe not. Um, but I know a lot of organizations that have said, please consider giving at the same amount that you would give if this was an in-person event. So they would say, please consider, can, even though we weren't able to hold this, uh, this program or fundraiser in person, but please consider giving at the $125 level. If you're not able to, we totally understand, but still consider these other levels, $100, $75. You know, because either way, even if someone doesn't give the $125, you are still making a lot of revenue because your expenses are less. So it's good to have, like, provide people options, especially with people impacted economically in so many different ways. Uh, having the option to either continue or not is a, is a good practice. And how do you, uh, the impact for, uh, through physical gatherings versus virtual gatherings, uh, is there, a, do you have an example or a, as an example of pivoting and how to pivot from, you know, those physical gatherings where you've got people in person to really turning it to a virtual and still having, you know, the turnout as well? Um, so, so is the question kind of like the assumption that you'll have less turnout if you go virtually? Yeah. So how do you kind of pivot? I mean, I would, I would suggest a lot of more social media marketing, you know, oh, yeah. people online. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would, I would, um, agree with that. I would agree with that. Someone just, um, made a comment about expenses may not be less if you go virtual, which is true because I just, um, was at a conference, I was presenting at a conference and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is really cool. How much is this? And how much is it for nonprofits? Because if I want to share it, I'd like to know. They're like, yeah, it's $15,000. And I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> right? So it, it, it just depends, right? Like if, you're, if you have a once a year fundraiser, you know, compare that cost to a $15,000 virtual investment of something you can use all year round, right? And then have opportunities to get revenue back from that. So, you know, each organization has to look at that for themselves as far as that. It may not always be cheaper, but if you're getting like a nonprofit Zoom account that's free mm-hmm. and then you're, you know, charging, I mean, you know, there's options at least that you can take advantage of. I don't know if you have a resource, there a resource for creating a new fee structure for virtual programming. Do you have any resources that you would use? Because this is new for so many folks, I think that's something that someone like myself could walk an organization through, right? Like have that conversation of what are we doing now? What could we potentially do going forward? And what are the things that we need to kind of talk about and consider? It's kind of like uh, the Wild Wild West where everyone is, has <laughs> to kind of figure it out, right? Like there's no template that's out there. If there is, you know, Let's talk about it. And I'm happy to share it because I think people are just trying to figure out what works best for them. So that that's definitely a conversation that, you know, having yeah, definitely. that skills and background to support that conversation would be helpful. Yeah. And a lot of these questions, again, are, as Tammy said before, are very um, specific to their area. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's another one, which so and I could see this, a lot of volunteers aren't, you know, showing up as much due to COVID and everything. 
So they're having uh, expenditures and staffing now because you're getting a lot of volunteers. Mm -hmm. So how do you, how do you uh, relay this to potential funders and, you know, in a good way that, you know, they can understand? That's easy. On one hand, if we hire staff, it will cost us this much. If we hire volunteers, (laughs) it's going to cost us this much. And we don't have as many volunteers, so we have a little bit of an issue here, right? Mm-hmm. We are uh, wrapping up here. I'll give Siobhan a, a minute to compose some last-minute advice and thoughts, and, and I'll just um, let people know that, that there are a lot of people struggling at this time and nonprofits struggling at this time, and we really do want to help you with resources and Hope that that uh, we can find ways to collaborate with your peers and other other folks that um, to find creative answers. I I saw a post yesterday on a, a news group that said I I just want to do a little bit of whining and mourning for our awesome events that we're not going to have. I understand why, <laughs> and we got to replace them with something else and pivot and do exactly what Siobhan has said, but. They're a little sad that they can't have yeah. the gala. They can't meet their people. Uh, just like our GPA conference next next week, we can't hug sad. each other, right? So it's all sad. virtual. And so it's sad, but but people are adapting, and um, hopefully we can uh, find ways to make those connections virtually as, as well and, and hopefully get back to where we can see people face-to-face. So thank you, Siobhan, so much, and Megan as well. Uh, any parting thoughts? Yeah, I will just say thank you to everyone for attending today. And thank you for all of the thank yous. This was great, wonderful, wow, great information in the chat. So thank you to everyone. And um, also, you know, learn more about us and engage with us. And if you um, ever need our help with anything, you know, definitely check out thinkingeatgrants.com and, you know, have it be a resource. And we can connect on LinkedIn too. So either way. Yes, uh, we really appreciate you donating your time to make this available free. And if people uh, see what you have and want to engage with you, uh, we really admire Think and Eat Grant Consulting and encourage you to do that. All right, everyone, we wish you the best success in your fundraising efforts. Take care and and, uh, uh, all the best wishes. So that was our conversation. A big thank you to Siobhan for sharing her expertise. Again, I would encourage you all to visit her website to learn more or to get in contact with her. That's thinkandinkgrants.com, and you can find that link in the episode notes. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. You can look for announcements on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn by following Foundant Technologies. And we want to hear from you. Sign up for a live webinar to chat or submit questions to our experts. Your question might even be featured in a future episode. So from everyone at Founded Technologies, thanks for listening. We hope you found it helpful, and we can't wait to connect with you again on our next Coffee Talk 